Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, all the way from merry old England, uh, Ed Condon. Ed, hello. Hello, J.D. Ed, you are um, really <laughs> something of a world traveler this uh, these days, because you and I were together, it feels to me like just a couple of days ago, I mean on Sunday, for goodness sake, we're recording this on Friday, so I guess it was a few days ago, but we were together in Texas, and before that you were in England, and before that you were in Rome. You are just, um, you are the man of many locales, I suppose, that's a stupid title for a person, but you are the man of many locales, are you not? I, I have done a lot of flying in the last three months, I think. Uh, I'm getting what I sincerely hope will be my final transatlantic flight for some time next week. And that will be, I think I calculated it, my eighth trip over the ocean in three months. And I think my, whatever the barometer for likeliness to develop deep vein thrombosis is, it's probably quite high <laughs> with me at this point. Because uh, I spent a lot of time in cramped conditions, breathing recycled air, unable to stretch, um, it's, yeah, it's probably not great for me, but, you know, that's that's the lifestyle, man. You must be racking up the miles, though, am I right? I don't think I am, um, because I'm, I'm honor-bound by the, to buy the cheapest possible flights on every occasion, and, and that means I've had to spread the love across a couple of airlines that I, um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend in every occasion. And, I see. you know, I'm not going to start a points account with like air morocco or something am i yeah right of course yeah no i hear you mm-hmm. yeah but you know live and learn well we were uh ed you and i were i mentioned this but you and i were in texas together along with our managing editor michelle la rosa over this past weekend and we were there um to do some cool things at the university of dallas we interviewed the president of the university of dallas and then we and we had a kind of a live show and that live show uh will be the the live show was um slightly abbreviated because of um, an unexpected um, technical issue there at the University of Dallas that had to do with interfacing effectively our system into their, to the, to the, to the sound system at their, uh, at the bar where we held the live show. And, uh, and so it was abbreviated. So what we've decided to do with the live show is to append it to the end of this show, like a kind of a, a bonus episode. And of course we talked about things, some of the things we talked about have now already Happened. occurred, but I think people are okay with that because you know what I've learned is that some people like um, will not even listen to our show when it comes out, even if we're talking about something topical, and then they'll like kind of binge a bunch on a car trip or something like that. So I think the people will be okay with it. I hope so, and and most importantly, I, the people in Dallas seem to be okay with it. And um, and I would just like to pay tribute to the the good people of Dallas. I had a I had what I think they call a rootin' tootin' good time while I well, was down there. Um, well, they, golly, we, we were a little overdressed in the end. Which which was a thing. We were a little um, overdressed. We thought that we thought that Texans would dress um, like Texans, so we went and got ourselves some Western wear. We got ourselves some very very cool actually. And it's funny because you know like it was not that long ago that we you were giving me a guff about. I mean like our whole hat shtick started probably I don't know six seven months ago something like that maybe eight months ago now I don't I don't know but I went from being sort of <laughs> opposed to the hat shtick to um, to being very enthusiastic about going to get some like hand embroidered Western wear shirts that we could wear in Dallas thinking as I did that, that would be the ordinary garb yes. of Texas. Um, well, I, I have, I, I'm very pleased at the way in which I am moving you ever closer to us getting <laughs> matching mariachi jackets, which you scoffed at. And, and I think you're warming up too slightly. So I'm pleased about that. Although we do seem to have the sort of um, 
the constant live show thing where we we end up doing it in in twin cities and misunderstand the cultural differences which between city the two. Is which mm-hmm. right? So we were in Dallas, and it turns out that we were dressed for Fort Worth. Um, Fort Worth is we learned the sort of cowboy version of the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex, and Dallas is the modern sort of anywhere city, USA, anywhere version. USA. I mean, not the not the University of Dallas, not the Dallas University cool, of Dallas. But <laughs> Dallas quad Dallas was kind of. Uh, you could have you could have been in a lot of places and, and and thought it was Dallas or vice versa. And I have to say, I like I, I enjoyed it. I re- like we went to their sort of groundhog burning music festival at the end. Burning. Oh hog. yeah, we went to this. I I really enjoyed the weekend, and and the University of Dallas was really cool. And we went to this groundhog festival, which is a big deal at the University of Dallas. It's their big to do as a festival for Groundhog's Day, and it was uh, it was quite cool. It was quite cool. Um, the the music was was of a. A higher standard than I was expecting, considering that it featured some student bands and stuff. And in fact, it was really quite good. You ended up getting up on stage at one point, which was which was fun, unexpected, I think, for both of us. But it is it is indeed. It, it, it started off happened. as basically a dare, and I'm not quite entirely sure who was daring who and all of that. But it ended up with you on stage in front of a crowd, and I thought that was that was certainly enjoyable for me watching from a safe distance. Um, so no, I had a great time at the University of Dallas. I did not go to the University of Dallas, but if I could have, I probably would have at this point. I, I enjoyed it. Well, I learned that it's hard to get in. So I don't even know if we, I, I don't know how hard it is to get in actually, but I was given the impression that it was a high caliber of students. Oh, well then so I'm not, I, I would not know. have gotten in. I don't even I, know if we would have gotten in. I don't, I, I, I honestly don't know. The number of, the number of in. universities on two sides of the Atlantic who, who looked askance at my high school transcript, uh. I, I'm sure the University of Dallas would have fit comfortably in their number, but I'm glad. I mean, we they gave us basically alumni sweatshirts, so I think they you know, did. So I feel like we're kind of like I feel like it's an like, honorary BA if they give you the alumni sweatshirt. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's probably right. Okay, so that was very cool, and we will append the live episode of the University of Dallas uh, trip to the end of this uh, podcast for you. We also we had a great interview with the president and we're hoping, I mean, it was just a very cool conversation with the president of the university of Dallas, kind of about Catholic education and stuff. It was kind of a, a, a sponsored conversation. They invited us down to have this conversation, which was very nice. And uh, they broadcast it uh, online and we're hoping that we may be able to get the audio from that and release it as a kind of a podcast as well. Although we're still waiting to see if that's going to be a thing that, that, that works out or not based upon the. Well, we can drop a, a link to the video of that in the show notes this week. Yeah, we will totally drop a link to the video of that in the show notes. Indeed. Okay. Moving on from us, our Western wear, and your transatlantic trips, um, I want to talk, and <laughs> if 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 we can, there is a lot going on in the news right now. There's a lot that you and I have been covering um, in the church in the United States and um, uh, in Rome. But the thing I want to talk about is something which I think has much broader implications than people might think, um, and it is a letter. It, it is a letter that was sent uh, by. Um, Cardinal Arthur Roach to a couple of U.S. bishops. We confirmed at least one bishop who got it, and we're, we're given to understand that other, other bishops received it as well, uh, which told them, um, which effectively made a legal interpretation of the Pope's motu proprio traditionis custodes. And the, the technical details are effectively that um, when traditionis custodes came out, which was the motu proprio prohibiting or restricting the celebration of the extraordinary form of the Mass, the uses antiquiores, I think people say, uh, there was a provision which said that... Um, the extraordinary form of the Mass, while it could be offered in dioceses under certain circumstances, couldn't be offered in parish churches. And a number of bishops in the United States effectively dispensed from that norm, using the prerogatives extended to them in Canon 87 of the Code of Canon Law, which allows bishops to dispense from 
universal law, and except in cases where it's universal disciplinary norms, at least except when it's reserved to the apostolic see, a number of bishops dispensed from that, didn't they? They did. Um, and a number of them dispensed for it for a couple of different reasons. I know of some cases in the United States where diocesan bishops dispensed from that norm sort of for a time because right. they needed um, to, you know, locate in, in some cases, do up alternative venues or or things like that. And or in some cases, there were sort of parish realignments and mergers and you know, all sorts of things in, in flux. And they said, well, we need to wait for that to, to shake out before we can designate the place. So everybody holds steady for the moment while we figure out how we're going to implement all of this in, in a sort of final phase. And others basically just said, well, we ain't got the we ain't got the spots to uh, right. to do that because the because the traditionis custodius when it prohibited the celebration of the extraordinary foreign parish churches many people have said oh this kind of makes sense this could make much more sense in europe where there are any number any any city of it, even a decent size has any number of sort of shrines and oratories and private chapels and chapels of ease and various kinds of sacred spaces which are not parish churches but here in the united states in most of the united states most of the catholic churches the sacred spaces of, of at least of any size as opposed to like a hospital chapel or something like that are parish churches and so there's not sort of just especially in um more rural dioceses there are not sort of just uh, a plethora of options other than parish churches from which to choose to allow for the extraordinary form, which is, I think, why some bishops said, well, I don't have anything else, so I'm going to issue a dispensation in accord with the prerogatives granted to me by canon law. Exactly. And, I mean, it's not just – I mean, then, to be clear, the prerogatives granted in canon law are not some sort of weird concession to bishops. It's part of the recognition that the bishop has a has an authentic role at the leadership of his diocese, which is, you know, both – sacramental and liturgical as well as governing as well as teaching and that the bishop right. is the apostle in his diocese and he needs to have the latitude to do whatever he thinks is necessary or appropriate to meet the good of souls in his parish now i just wanted to say i mean there are bishops probably who issue dispensations because they wanted to let people keep doing the thing they were doing and there are probably bishops who issued dispensations because they were not you know gigantic supporters of traditionis custodis and they effectively wanted it to have the minimal amount of effect on their people as they could i mean if we're going to say there are some who didn't have any th- other options, there are probably some who just thought this was the best thing or the thing they wanted to do, and we should, you know, concede that as well. Nevertheless, that's a thing that some bishops did is to issue this dispensation. Sure, but to and, be clear, uh, the motivations, in a sense, are they can be disparate because, again, what the law have to make a said, the law allows them to make a prudential judgment. About yeah, this. and Canon eighty seven in enshrining this power for them says, you know, the bishops are the ones who who will make this judgment about when they need to invoke this power because that's that's their job. Okay, so what happened next? Well, so two things happened. First, Cardinal Roach's department issued uh, some responsa ad dubia, which is sort of a a, a Vatican sort an of answer to frequently asked questions. Yeah, exactly an FAQ, and and in that he he sort of further did ratchet it down and said, well, there are places in traditionis custodis where it says you need um, to consult with my department on things. Actually, you don't need to consult; you need my consent, permission, right? And he's like, that was implicitly in the law, or there were translation problems or stuff. And a lot of canons were like, huh, we don't. A lot of canons, not just us. A lot of canons that we yes. talked to were like, we don't. Huh, that doesn't, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound, sound like right. Chives with the, right. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it should be noted that these sort of Vatican FAQs, which you know come out of all the departments with some regularity, whenever there's you know something that's going on and people have questions about, these are not authoritative interpretations of canon law. They are not you know sort of governing documents. They are advisory opinions. They give a sense of what they're thinking in the dicastery, but they don't you know they don't make law. Right, um, and they don't interpret law authoritatively either. So we had one of those, and then this letter uh, that surfaced this week which was apparently sent to a number, 
we don't know how many exactly, um, bishops in the United States said... But we confirmed that at least one bishop got it, and we believe that others got it as well. Exactly. Um, and this letter from Cardinal Roach said, well, no, where you can't invoke Canon 87 to dispense from any of the norms of Traditionis Custodes, including and especially, I think it's Article 7, which um, says that you know you can't have extraordinary form masses in a parish church. He said, no, you, you absolutely cannot do that. That power is reserved to the Holy See, as is obvious from the text of the motu proprio. And okay. so you, you can't dispense my... from this parish church thing because the power is reserved from the Holy, from the Holy See to the Holy See, namely to my department. And that's evident in the motu proprio. Which, that's what um, he said, yes. Yes, it is what he said. And if you, if you read the motu proprio, I would say it's definitely not evident. It's definitely not evident in it, right? And so one of the things about Canon 87 is it says very kind of clearly – Unless the Holy See has explicitly reserved a dispensation to itself. Yes, you know, and, and to be clear, uh, canon law does that all the time. The Code of Canon right, Law exactly. says the power to dispense from this impediment to ordination or marriage or um, to, you know, release someone Matters from their religious, religious law or sacramental discipline or anything. This, this is reserved that. to the Holy See. Yeah. It says it's right say, there. Okay, and that's how you yeah. work and you understand how the system operates and you do it. You know, you, you, you act accordingly. Exactly. It's, it's not, not complicated. The rules are clear. Everybody knows them, except right. apparently... They're now not clear, or <laughs> Cardinal Roach doesn't know them. It could be one or the other. We'll find out. Right. So this letter said, hey, you actually couldn't give that dispensation. It was actually reserved to the Apostolic See. And that's implied by the fact that the that Traditionis Custodis says that my department has oversight authority over the implementation of this thing. The problem is, as any first-year canon law student will tell you, an implication of reservation is no reservation at all. Exactly. A reservation must be an explicit thing. Why? Because it's a rule which restricts the free exercise of rights of a bishop and therefore must be interpreted strictly. explicitly, inter- interpreted strictly, and therefore to have it interpreted that way, you must have it explicit. I mean, that's yeah. – Well, and more to the point, Traditio Augustinus does have occasions where it says you have to refer to the apostolic see on this. Right, and, you have to consult. And what? when we say refer to the apostolic see, we mean the castry for divine worship and the discipline of the sacraments. There are places right. where it has to do that. For example, um, paragraph – Four, I think, Article Four. Of Article TC? Four talks about consultation if you're going to allow a young priest to, uh, a priest who's re, who was ordained after the motu proprio to celebrate the extraordinary form of the mass, right. and then the response at dubia that you referenced said, "Oh, when we said consultation, we meant uh, permission," and so there's right. some so debate over that. The, you know, e- even where it does reference the Holy See, it's not it's not clear, and that's my most charitable interpretation. It is not clear that Cardinal Roach has the powers which he is asserting he has. And I would say it is evident that he is making an interpretation for which there is no obvious textual basis. And um, and that's kind of a problem. That's, that's kind, of kind of confusing. Of, it's kind of a problem. It's kind of confusing. And what I want to say is... Um, uh, What's interesting is I want to talk about the sort of broader implications in the life of the church. Um, But first, I think what's really interesting here is that at least one bishop we know, uh, and I suspect others, have effectively said, um, okay, if that's the the rule, I'll do it, and I'll ask you for the dispensation, and I'll meet some formal requirements that you want me to meet of providing me some information and things like that. In other words, it seems to us that what has happened is that a, a letter recently surfaced in which Cardinal Roche of the Prefect of the Castry for Divine Worship and the Discipline of Sacraments asserted a prerogative which the law does not actually give him, asserted a justification which, by the reading of any canon lawyer we know, does not actually justify it. And for the most part, in as much as we know, bishops have said, um, okay. And that's that's very yeah. interesting in itself, isn't it? It is very interesting. And it's interesting for, I, I would argue, a number of 
reasons. Um, the first is, I, I presume it implies, at least on the part of some bishops, that they are inclined to just sort of give the Holy See its head on whatever they they want to do and say, look, if, if you guys want to deal with this, that's great. In fact, I, I welcome not having to, you know, decide myself. That's fine. Um, I think there will be other bishops who perhaps have invoked Canon 87 in the past and done so for, for prudent and obvious pastoral reasons to themselves and their diocese, and they, on the other hand, aren't necessarily going to get into an arm wrestling match with a Vatican department on a sensitive subject. And so they just have decided it's not worth the fight. And and I can understand how some might reach that conclusion. And in other cases, I think it's entirely possible that some bishops just are taking Cardinal Roach at his word and say, well, if right. you say you've got the power, you've got the power. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that's probably right. And, and of all of them, I think the last one is probably the most problematic because, you know, that's, that is exactly how you get the erosion of the authority and dignity of the office of the diocesan bishop, which we had in the church for a long time, for centuries. That built in up a eroded sense, in a eroded sense, you mean? Yes, in a eroded Yes, and and led in large part to the Second Vatican Council, which was, in many ways, targeted at rediscovering and re-emphasizing the autonomy and the dignity and the governing power of the bishop in his diocese. And, and I think we've been seeing this being wound back in a really big way. I mean, this is the Cardinal Roach's most recent letters, I think, um, I, I, I want to call, I, I don't want to be pejorative, I, I, the, but the word I, I'm reaching for here is egregious example. Um, but it's by no means the only data point on this trend that has been going on in the church. And we've reported on a lot of these. On you know there was there was a thing about um, diocesan bishops losing effectively the ability to recognize a a society a, um, a an association of the faithful uh, without Vatican permission if it looked like the association of the faithful was going to be on a path towards being recognized as a as a new religious society in the diocese uh, and that was I think last year last May or June I think last um, year it was last year yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so we've had a couple of data points on this. I mean, what we are seeing really is a winding back of Vatican II. And and I find it more than a little ironic that Cardinal Roach is basically winding back the substantive ecclesiological reforms of the Second Vatican Council, and he's doing it under the sort of guys of saying, no, I'm defending the liturgical reforms of the Second Vatican Council, which right. I think is a, is kind of a hilarious irony if for no other reason than, you know, what we're talking about is liturgical reforms that followed the Second Vatican Council that weren't actually part of the council itself. I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I want to explore it a little bit more because I think some people listening might be saying, okay, but uh, we're Catholic and um, isn't it good? I mean, we're Catholic, for goodness sake. We're, we're not... Um, part of a sort of diffused confederation of churches like the Anglican Communion or even Global Orthodox. The German Bishops' Conference or... The German Bishops' Conference, right? And isn't it good? I mean, okay, you guys are nerds about canon law stuff and you're getting all persnickety about some dispensation thing, blah, blah, blah. But isn't it good to do what the church wants? Isn't that a virtue? And it's a a reasonable question. Are you and I just being sort of you and sure. me. I mean, are you and me just being sort of you and me, pedantic and persnickety? And isn't it good to do what the Vatican wants, or is there something more to this? And I want to talk about that, but I want to do it after this word from our sponsor. Friends, do you ever find yourself taking a look in the mirror and saying, I would like to have a little more structure in my life, practically, mentally, 
spiritually. I sure do. <laughs> yes, indeed you do, JD. Um, and if you are, like JD, looking for a little more structure and perhaps the kind of thing that can tell you with some accuracy what Saint's Feast Day it is, I have a recommendation for you, and it is The Saint Maker, friends. The Saint Maker is a one-of-a-kind Go on. <laughs> is a one-of-a-kind personal journal and planner which will help you reignite your faith and reorganize your life and experience true spiritual growth. But how? (laughs) Well, J.D., if you would pick up your copy of The Saint Maker, you would see (laughs) that it is a daily planner and calendar that is backed by modern productivity science, centered on Catholic wisdom and the readings of the Church, and it is a resource at your fingertips to make you more focused, productive, and on fire for the faith every day. Wow, the Saint Maker sounds great, Ed. How can I get one? Well, pillar listeners and obnoxious co-hosts can um, get 10% off their first Saint Maker by visiting thesaintmaker.com slash pillar and using the code pillar, that's P-I-L-L-A-R, all capital letters at checkout. And I tell you what, J.D. Can I try it risk-free for any period of time? Yes, J.D., you can, in fact, try it risk-free for a period of time. You could try it risk-free for, if I'm not mistaken, 90 days. And you can get your money back if you don't like it and it's not helping you. But I am fairly confident it will help you because, look, I am a completely chaotic and disorganized person. I need to have things written down. I like to have things in my hand that I can actually look at and make sure I'm keeping to. I like a little schedule in my life. I like a little schedule in my prayer life. I like... I have. I need a lot of schedule in my working life because I'm usually 10 minutes late for a Zoom meeting that JD has scheduled and perhaps told me about it. Sometimes not. So if you, like me or like JD, would like a little more structure in your life, spiritually, practically, psychologically, logistically, get yourself a saint maker. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to thesaintmaker.com slash pillar. That's thesaintmaker.com slash pillar. I'm going to use the promo code pillar to order myself a saint maker. I'm going to get 10% off and then I'm going to try it 90 days risk free. And you know what, guys? You should too. The Saint Maker. Hey, everybody, we are back, and we are back from what might be the greatest ad that we have ever made. I hope you get to hear it because we really liked it. Um, Ed, so in answer to your question, J.D., we're well, Catholic. Should we just question. do what you do no, when you come back I from a break? No, but I want to respond to the You the question. You repeat the question when you come back from a break. I've listened to a lot of radio in my life, and that's what you do. All right. I just hey, like we're Catholic. Re- isn't it good that we do what the Holy See would like us to? Isn't it obvious what the Holy See would want, and isn't it good for bishops to do it? Perhaps. What you actually asked me before the break, which is why I didn't oh. <laughs> want to give you a chance to rephrase the question, because I wanted to respond to it as you'd phrased it, which is, isn't it good to do what the church wants? And what I was going to say is, yes, but Cardinal Arthur Roach is not the church. I think that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And nor is the Dicastery for the doc- or Dicastery for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments the church. The Dicastery for, the divine, um, for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments is only, in certain legally defined ways, properly the apostolic see it doesn't enjoy the fullness of papal power or discretion and to clarify what exactly is the prerogative and the authority of the diocesan bishop is necessary because again if you if you get into this sort of well someone in rome wrote me a letter and said that it's got to be this way and you know i don't want to fight with you know a guy in rome you know they've got fancy cufflinks and stuff i Mm -hmm. you know tangle with them then that's exactly how we develop a culture of bad law, bad governance, bad ecclesiology. That's how the church sort of devolves into uh, the sort of 
ossified, messy state where we aren't really living our charisms at all levels of the church, whether it's Catholics in the pews, priests on the altar, bishops in their dioceses, or Vatican prefects in their offices. You know, we all have to play our roles, and that means making sure that our roles are defined and we're living up to them and we're not overstepping the mark and we're not misunderstanding or misrepresenting what it is we're supposed to be doing. Having that kind of living clarity is what makes for a healthy body. Yeah, I tell you, I tell you, I agree with you. I'll tell you what I've been thinking about this because I think it would be reasonable for someone who's not sort of um, interested in liturgical law or canon law that much to say, like, you guys. Basically, it sounds like Cardinal Roach is saying that he isn't empowered to give a dispensation and um, bishops aren't, and the, the Pope seems fine with that. So why are you guys making a big deal out of this? I'll tell you why. Um, it is, it's not because I have a particular um, concern, actually, about who gives the dispensation. I'm, I'm not – I mean, I, I, see, I see, generally speaking, sort of the, that indeed the Second Vatican Council aims to reaffirm – substantively the prerogatives of the diocesan bishop and um, his governing authority and his judgment and all those things. But I also recognize that the Holy See has the right to sort of reserve certain things to itself. And if the Holy See had seen fit to do that, blessed be God. I mean, you know, that's... But but what it is, Ed, I honestly think is that what this effectively is, is a dicastery of the Holy See saying to diocesan bishops, we all agree that for the sake of justice and um, good governance and the pursuit of holiness and the salvation of souls, we will play according to a set of rules called canon law. Um, But while you think the plain meaning of canon law is one thing, and while your canon lawyers who you've spent money on sending to canon law school think that the plain meaning of canon law is one one thing, and while the history of canonical tradition is um, – would say that this plain reading of canon law is one thing, we're actually just going to tell you that it means another thing and you should listen. And that feels to me honestly at – I don't want to be hyperbolic about it, but it feels to me Orwellian. Now, it's Orwellian maybe sort of in a small and early stage, but I feel right now like – we're pointing this out, and maybe people would say, why you make a big deal? I, I feel like lawyers are trained to understand the structure of the thing and to understand how the structure of the thing works. If a contractor came into your house and said, hey, I'm looking at that small crack right there, and that small crack is telling me actually that there's a problem with your foundation and your back porch is going to fall off in six months, so let's deal with it now instead of later, I'd probably listen because the guy understands how the structure of things called houses work. And, and I, I think in the same way, the sort of objections that canon lawyers have been raising, and not just us, but canon lawyers regard, that we know, regardless of what they think about the extraordinary form, have been raising about this, is the same thing. Hey, we think that if you basically say that the Holy See can say that canon law means whatever it says it means, regardless of what's actually in the words, that's going to lead to a great deal of chaos that's probably going to lead to a great deal of hurt and unnecessary um, pain and difficulty and probably injustice. And And I see that here, and it is very honestly not because I have a particular sort of bent on the substance of who gives a dispensation, but because of how this is happening, really very concerning to me. Yeah, I, I would go one further and say um, that when you have a, a system in the church where, well, the guy um, one up from me in the food chain tells me the sky is green and grass is blue, and I just got to go along with that. And he says he's allowed to do this thing that the law says he's not allowed to do. But I'm just going to, you know, say, OK, fine. That's how you get things like the Vatican financial scandal. Mm-hmm. That's exactly how you get stuff like that is you have subordinates who are told you don't question your superior. And if you think your superior is breaking the law, you don't ask for clarification and you certainly don't expect to get clarification. You should you know, expect to get disciplined if you dare raise your voice like that. And you're just, you know, let him do whatever he wants and get out of the way. That's your job. And we have a word for that culture in the church, J.D. It's called clericalism, clericalism and it's supposed right. to be bad. It's supposed to be I bad, we, and we're supposed to I be thought we had a whole thing forward, and where we, we agreed 
That's right. Yeah. So we can't, I mean, what can we do? We can raise this. And indeed, part of the reason why we have raised this is not only because we have noticed it, but many candidates who we know uh, have 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 raised this, have expressed concern about this. This is a, this is the talk of the town among candidates right now, as far as I can tell, because it's seen, I think, by a lot of people as a significant issue. And we have raised it because we think it's worthwhile analysis in the life of the church to say, hey, there's a crack over there that probably means a crack in your foundation. You probably should get it fixed. But the people who actually um, are sort of empowered to raise questions about it are not us, but diocesan bishops. And um, I find myself very curious whether this will actually become a point at which diocesan bishops, whatever they think about traditionis custodes, the extraordinary form, whether that's a fight they want to get into, blah, blah, blah. I find myself very curious whether diocesan bishops might say, hey, do we have the rule of law in the church or not? And if we don't, how can we be expected to govern confidently in our own dioceses, to govern justly for the sake of the salvation of souls? How can we expect it to lead our priests and our people if at any moment what the Holy See told us is going to mean something different without an actual mechanism to do that? And and I and I, I wonder whether bishops will raise that or whether they'll think this is just, I don't want that fight and this is just these guys being hyperbolic because they got to fill a show and all that. Yeah, I, I would understand why they wouldn't want that fight. But I mean, again, somebody's <laughs> Me going to do it. Me too. I'd do it if I could, but I don't have legal standing. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, but, it'll, it, but it'd be curious. And then, of course, you know, the question is, would the Holy Father do anything about it and, and these kinds of things? Or well, the Holy we, Father yeah. wouldn't get – I mean, this is – but this is the thing. is either – how that would work is if a bishop wrote back to Arthur Roach and said, you – you can't say that, and you can't do that, and no, you don't, and yes, I do, and I'm going to do that anyway, and if you have a problem with that, I will see you in court. I I reject your you know, your letter stating right. your opinion, which is not a valid legal instruction or document. It's just your opinion, and if you would like to send me a recognizable legal decision telling me, you know, decreeing to yeah, me that I have not this— Yeah, interpretation or some sort of— yeah. yeah. That is great, and then the bishop can send that back and say, I am asking you to please reconsider this. And, and then make a recourse. I believe it's be, right. Yeah. And then make a recourse. Go to the apostolic signature where the church has a panel of judges impaneled to decide just these issues. Pope Francis doesn't have to enter it at all unless he wants to. And if he does want to, then we'll have clarity of a different kind. But the fact of the matter is I think that no bishop will do that because I honestly think that there are many bishops, and I find this by talking with them, who would say if push came to shove, yeah – we're concerned about many elements of the rule of law. We talked to a prominent European cardinal a couple of months ago who told us precisely this. We're very concerned, this prominent European cardinal told us, we're very, um, and it was an off-the-record conversation, which is why we can't use his name, but we're very concerned about the rule of law for bishops in the life of the church, the protection of rights for bishops in the life of the church. We think that stuff matters because um, a society with the rule of law is a just society, and for the church to pursue its sacred ends, it needs to have justice. We're very concerned about these things, but... We're effectively keeping our heads down because we don't anticipate any kind of a resolution. I, I, I honestly think that's the state of the board. You know, I mean, I'm just trying to put out yeah. where I think the well, pieces on the board are. I honestly think that's the state of the board with regard to this critical question. I don't particularly disagree with that assessment, but as as a as a recent pope once said, a society without laws is a society without rights, and that doesn't go anywhere good for us. And by us, I mean the entire church. Yeah, maybe it would maybe well be good for us, but. Not good for the whole. Well, yeah, it might make for good copy, but it's, I mean, you know. why, right? So why is it not good for the life of the church? I think this point that this bishop made, we don't think the Holy See will sort of have our back if we don't do, you know, on this sort of ever-changing sort of shift of landscape where we don't know what we can do and what we can't do. 
that just makes for extremely timid leaders. And that kind of making for extremely timid leaders doesn't only pertain to sort of can I dispense from the extraordinary form or not, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that kind of making for extremely timid leaders um, just undercuts all kinds of not only reform in the church, but more importantly, renewal in the church. Can I initiate this important apostolic work, this important sort of evangelical work, um, this important catechetical project, or will I subsequently find out that the Holy See didn't want that to be happening, you know, and, and therefore I have to walk it back or I'm in this yeah. sort of complex situation. Yeah, yeah that's, exactly. That's troubling. It's very troubling. And and again, it's so senseless because this is, I mean, this is the ridiculous thing and this is what frustrates me about this whole thing is, you know, um, Pope Francis, I, I don't view him as a, as a man who minces words. I don't think he's a man who struggles to get his point across when he wants to. And I don't think he's a man who has trouble articulating what he wants when he when he's made his mind up. Um, Cardinal Roach, I don't know personally, but he he also doesn't strike me as a as a poorly educated man um, or a man unfamiliar with the the curial department which he leads or in which he served for many years before that. Um, Traditionis custodis is a real thing. It is a real motu proprio. It is a real law promulgated on the authority of Pope Francis. And it could have said whatever Pope Francis wanted it to say. Mm-hmm. If he wanted to say each and every one of these articles herein is the dispensation of which is reserved to the apostolic see, he could have done that. Right. It would have taken exactly eight seconds to type those words. Right. It didn't. Yeah. Nobody did. It's not in the law. And the idea that, you know, oh, well, Pope Francis is, you know, simply incapable of making himself clear in any coherent legal sense is, I think, rather an offensive charge to lay against the Pope. I think that's I right. tend to give Francis the credit of he meant what he wrote and what he signed. And if you have a problem with that, the correct thing to do is go to the Pope and ask him to amend the law. But I don't think that they want to do that because I don't think the Pope wanted to say something that it doesn't. And and that annoys me. It's a power grab. It could certainly be seen that way. Okay. I want to talk about one other thing. We just have a few more minutes because we're going to tack on this um, this other live show, so we've got to keep this one tight, plus you've got a train to catch. So I, I want to talk about uh, one other thing, which is, to my mind, one of the more interesting things that we have covered in the last uh, week. I, I can't believe this has been a long week, but in the last week, which is a big change, Ed, for the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. Do you know the oh, change Lord, of which was I that speak? This, I that do, was but this I can't week, believe that was this super, week. <laughs> it, was, it happened. It was announced on Monday, and it is super interesting, Ed. So... Do you want me to uh, explain it, or do you want to explain what happened for the Ukrainian, what the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church announced on Monday? I I feel like I've been talking a lot. Go for it. <laughs> okay. Um, but but Merry Christmas to you and everyone in in Kiev. Okay. The Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church is one of the twenty two Eastern Catholic sui juris churches in the Catholic Communion. The Catholic commun- the Catholic Church is not sort of one thing. It is um, it is uh, many things, in which all of, all of which are churches in communion with each other, in communion with the Roman Pontiff, the Bishop of Rome, the successor of Saint Peter, the Vicar of Christ on Earth, um, the the Pope. And the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church is actually the largest of the twenty two sui juris or of their own law Catholic, Eastern Catholic churches in communion with the Roman Pontiff, in addition to the Latin Catholic Church, which I belong to and Ed belongs to, and maybe some of you belong to too. Okay, so the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church is um, not the largest religion in Ukraine, not the largest Christian church in Ukraine. Um, mo- most Christians in Ukraine are Orthodox, but especially in the western part of Ukraine. Um, many people belong to the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. There are also Latin Catholics, but not very many. Um, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, like many Eastern Catholic churches, is governed ultimately by the Pope, um, but in a practical and in a day-to-day level, governed by something called a synod of bishops. Now, 
You may think you know what that is. But a synod of bishops in this case does not mean a gathering of people to talk about how they feel about various things. Um, a synod of bishops in this case means a governing assembly of the bishops of the church. Many Eastern Catholic churches are governed by the synod of bishops, which is a sort of governing, normative, deliberative body of bishops who come together to make decisions about the life of the church um, under the leadership of their head, in this case, Major Archbishop um, Shevchuk, who is the head of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, save for the Pope. Okay, so on Monday, Archbishop Shevchuk announced a major change for the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, and it's this. To this point, the Church has been observing, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church has been observing something called the Julian liturgical calendar. This is actually a very ancient liturgical calendar in the life of the Church. It is effectively, it's a very complicated Calendars are very complicated, but it is effectively, there's a continuity <laughs> between the Julian calendar and the, the earliest liturgical calendars of the church. Um, the Julian calendar is the calendar uh, of, for liturgical feasts and celebrations, which is observed, which at various points have been observed by most of Orthodoxy and until um, somewhere around a thousand years ago was observed by the whole of the, the whole of the church. Um, the Catholic Church, and I cannot remember the the year. Do you remember the year of the Gregorian reform? No, no. Hang on. Let me get my... Oh, oh my... I said a thousand years, but I was way wrong. 500 years. Because the Catholic <laughs> Church in 1582 um, made a reform of the Julian calendar, called uh, a new calendar called the Gregorian calendar. And the reason was because the Julian calendar uh, had a little trouble. It overestimated the length of every year by about 10 minutes and added up. That meant that the calendar kind of drifted around uh, the seasons and it wasn't sort of staying stable with the seasons. And Gregory said, we're going to fix this. We're going to shorten the year by 0. 0.0075 days. We're going to end up with leap years and figure out how that's going to work. Um, we're going to do some calendar reforms. But as a consequence of that, the Western Christianity was using one calendar, the Gregorian calendar, and Eastern Christianity was using another calendar, the Julian calendar. Now, that was sort of how things stood until 1923, when in, 19, when in 1923, a bunch of Eastern Christians, uh, Eastern Orthodox churches, including the large Greek Orthodox church, said, hey, this is kind of weird now. The West is doing one thing. We're doing another thing. We should revise the calendar. We don't want to go all the way to Gregorian because that feels a little Western to us, but we are going to revise the calendar. So they came up with something called the Revised Julian Calendar. The Revised Julian Calendar is a calendar that mostly right now follows, it's very, how they do this is very technical. It has to do with lunar phases and it's a whole deal, but mostly the Gregorian... You need the, a really good watch to follow the You lunar, need a really the, good the watch. adjusted Julian calendar. Mostly the revised Julian calendar aligns with the Gregorian calendar, except for Easter. Easter in the revised Julian calendar continues to um, be celebrated at the same time as the Julian calendar Orthodox churches. So the status was, until, the status is at the moment, you've got your Julian calendar Orthodox, your revised Julian calendar Orthodox, your Gregorian calendar Latin Catholics, and then Eastern Catholics are kind of spattered along that spectrum at various points. There are some Eastern Catholics who are who are already Gregorian, some who are revised Julian, some who are Julian. The biggest church in the the biggest sort of apostolic church which observes the Julian calendar is the Russian Orthodox Church. And in Ukraine, over the past couple of years, the Julian calendar has become politically contentious. Why? Because Christians there say, hey, how come we're celebrating Christmas at a different time than the West, mostly kind of to celebrate Christmas at the same time as Russia? And Patriarch Kirill says, well, that's because you're effectively Russia. We're all one thing. We're all one culture. That's why we have all we're our holidays one together. Big Rusik we're one Mir. big Rusik Mir. Ruski world, right? We're one big Russian world. It's the Ruski Mir ideology. And increasingly, as their country is bombed and, and minefielded and, um, and tormented, uh, increasingly, a number of Ukrainians are saying, we don't really want to be Ruski Mir. 
we don't really like that this liturgical calendar, we basically look to Moscow for our liturgical calendar when most of the world's Orthodox at this point, including the large Greek Orthodox Church and those who follow its influence, are in the revised Julian calendar, and the Christians of the West are on the Gregorian calendar. So that's been happening. It's been sort of this thing where more and more believers in Ukraine are saying, we don't want to be influenced by the Ruski Mir. Last week, at a synod of bishops of the, of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, the Ukrainian Greek Catholics sort of led the way on this. And the bishops said, yeah, we don't want to be on the Julian calendar along with the Russian Orthodox Church. So we're going to move to the revised Julian calendar, which means we will mostly follow the Gregorian calendar. We'll have Christmas on December 25th, same as Latin Catholics, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll celebrate Easter in union with most Eastern Christians uh, at the time when the Julian calendar and the revised Julian calendar celebrate Easter. It's a big deal because it's it is a huge a liturgical change. But it's also a big deal because of all the way in which all, sort of all of that political stuff has impacted this major liturgical decision for the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, and in which they've said, yeah, we're not looking, we, we reject effectively this Ruski Mir ideology that says we're all one world, so we have one, I, I, one calendar, and we're looking now to these other influences, both to Rome, but not only to Rome, we didn't go to the Gregorian calendar, also to Constantinople, because we are indeed Eastern Christians with our own patrimony and our own heritage. We're in union with the Pope, but we're not sort of a branch office of the Latin church. We're our own thing with our own heritage and our own history. It's a, it's a striking statement, it seems to me. It is a very striking statement. and It's going to have significant, I think, ecumenical ramifications. I mean, that has been, and we've, we've done some reporting on this over the last year, the, the way in which the ecumenical board um, between the Orthodox churches and also the Eastern Catholic churches and how all of them interrelate is, is shifting so quickly and so dramatically because of the war in Ukraine and because of the role that the Russian Orthodox Church is playing in vocal support of Putin and the invasion and, and the actions of Russian soldiers in Ukraine, that, you know, I really don't think it's possible at this point to predict where it's all going to shake out. Um, you know, some people have have said this is like the first step towards a common Christian date for Easter. And I, I think that that's a, that's a leap for the moment. Um, personally, I think it would be nice if in the Latin church, we could celebrate all of our feast days on the same day, just among ourselves and, and stop having people moving them to Sundays willy nilly, but in separate conversation. Uh, I think that, you know, maybe a common date for Easter is a bit far yet, but the, the way in which Russia is by sort of pulling itself out of communion effectively with the wider Eastern Christian world is is changing you know it's like pulling a planet out of alignment you know it just changes the orbit and the pull of gravity on absolutely all the other bodies in the system and and i really don't know where it's all going to shake out to but i mean constantinople is getting way closer to rome in all of this the other eastern churches are looking much more definitively at constantinople that you know the sort of the what you know russia considers to be its ecclesiological sphere of influence is turning the other way and running away, not just in Ukraine, some of the other traditionally sort of Russia-looking Orthodox churches are getting increasingly skittish with being associated with Carol and, and his whole thing. So it really is fascinating. Yeah, it absolutely it absolutely is. I do think that the next step will be that, okay, so what the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church has said, what the hierarchy has said to its diocese, its eparchies is, okay, we're making the change. September, I think it's September 1st, bam, we're following this calendar, which for other complicated reasons, they're not exactly calling the revised Julian calendar, but it is. So we're making this change. September 1, this is our liturgical calendar. But if your parish needs time, 
you can take up until I think it's 2025 to fully implement this. You can have some time to fully implement this if your parish needs time. So that's the approach of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. We're making this change, and if you need some time, you can take it. At the exact same time, the Autonomous Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which is the majority of believers in, in Ukraine, the Autonomous Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which is, a, which is recognized as autonomous by the Patriarch of Constantinople, who is the, a major figure in global orthodoxy, ha, has sort of done the opposite. Their bishops have said to parishes, okay, we're not ready to make this change, but if you want to make it at your parish, you can do it. So the Ukrainian Greek Catholics have taken this route of we're making an official change, and we're urging you to come along with us, and you can take a little time if you need it. Whereas the um, Orthodox Church of Ukraine is saying, um, hey, we're not making the change, but you can get out ahead of us a little bit if you want. But I do think that the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which has a, a, a synod, its own synod of bishops in just a couple of weeks now, I do think that they themselves might land on this same place, and that would be monumental, right? Because that would be a huge, huge. swath of... Um, of, uh, of, of Ukrainian Christians and those who themselves are Orthodox moving in this direction. And it would be very, very clear that the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church sort of led the way on this, which would be, which would be interesting ecumenically as well. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which is aligned with the Moscow Patriarchate, which gets its status um, and, and is sort of under the patronage of the Moscow Patriarch Kirill, is unlikely to make this change anytime soon. But what's interesting is as, um, as other Orthodox churches in Ukraine do it, as the Greek Catholics, the Ukrainian Catholics do it, there are indeed um, Ukrainian Orthodox Church parishes which are saying, "Oh, we're doing it too," and just sort of not telling their bishops. Yeah. It's a very Ukrainian way of doing. Or, excuse me, a very Orthodox way of doing things. Like, well, we're doing it, and you know, we'll see what happens. Um, so, um, so there, it's happening too. So this is, but this is like, in a certain way, this is a liturgical statement that is both um, a liturgical statement about sort of Christian unity and a desire for broader Christian unity, and at the same time. A, cult, a profound cultural change because celebrating Christmas on December 25th will be a big change in itself, but one that is sort of rather definitively a move away from and, and, and an avowed move away from the um, influence of, of Moscow in Ukraine and, and therefore looking towards West, not only towards Rome, but towards Constantinople. Which is not yeah, I, the, the potential ecumenical ramifications of all this, I think, will be historic. I genuinely think they will be historic. I think we, I think church historians will be writing books about what is what is going happening on right, right. Now, right now, and we'll continue to cover it as well. Um, Edward, you've got a train to catch, and I know you've got to get Hedwig and get him in his cage or whatever, and then get to the thing, and um, uh, you're going to do that. So I do just want to close by saying, listeners, we are as always very, very grateful for you. We're about to append onto this our live show from the University of Dallas, which we hope you enjoy. If you enjoy the Pillar podcast and you're not already, please consider becoming a subscriber to the Pillar. You can go to PillarCatholic.com and click on the subscribe button and become a subscriber to the Pillar to support our journalism, our podcasting, and all of our other um, various kinds of things. Ed? Please and thank you. Yeah. The Pillar podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host, JD Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. And stay tuned for our live show from the Raskeller Bar at the University of Dallas. everybody, welcome to a very special live episode of the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and uh, what do I say after? Oh, I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, howdy. <laughs> Whoa! Wait a minute. Whoa. Wait a minute. Was that? Hold on. 
Was that a plus four, Ed? Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. What is happening now? I am also a character on this podcast. Yeah, but you're not the popular one. I know. It's very clear. Uh, Ed, how are you? Ed, we, where are we right now and what is happening? We, we are at the in. Are we at the Rathskeller or are we in the Rathskeller? I'm not entirely sure. In. We are in the Rathskeller on campus at the University of Dallas for the ritual burning of groundhogs weekend. Yeah, what is this? Like, what? Uh, yeah, we are here at the University of Dallas doing... A, we were invited to come to the University of Dallas to do two live shows. This one in the bar, which is called The Rathskeller. And then tomorrow we're going to do a live show where we interview the president of the University of Dallas, who used to be my landlord, which is super fun because he didn't give me my security deposit back like 20 years ago, and I'm pissed. Uh, so we're going to talk about that, but we're really excited to be here at the University of Dallas. And this is a very cool live show for us because we are actually doing it from behind the bar, at the bar of the Rathskeller at the University of Dallas, right? Yes, we are... I mean, I've always wanted to eventually just move the show behind a bar for ease and convenience, although this isn't quite how I saw it going. Um, but we are here, and we finally got all the sound issues ironed out. I'm feeling slightly overdressed. Um, also here present tonight, for anyone who doesn't know, is our managing editor, Michelle Rosa, who is fabulous, and basically making sure that... And Michelle is here because she is... An alumna of this university, class of what, 2020 or something like that? Michelle, class, when did class you? Class of 2019 or class something. Of 2011. Class of 2011. And before we kind of get started, Michelle's going to come on the podcast and explain to us about this sort of um, Jungian sa- groundhog sacri- scapegoating sacrifice that is, that is going to take place but this I, week. I mean, I do just want to make it clear for anyone who's wondering why JD and Michelle and I are wearing cowboy hats and ornate, and I have to say, very comfortable embroidered shirts and everything. It was because <laughs> we asked Michelle what is normal at the University of Dallas. And she insisted, actually, that we needed the long fringe on it, and I drew the line there, and I said that would make us look foolish, and, you know, here we are. So It's my guess this is actually normal at Wyoming Catholic College, and Michelle got confused. <laughs> well, I landed yet. No, when I landed yet. <laughs> there's, there's Wyoming Catholic College's student population weighing in on that issue. Wow. Well, I don't know where this is coming from. It's been a long it's day. It's coming from good. the insecurity of a man who went to Steubenville is what it's coming from. <laughs> Well done. So yeah, so this is what we thought was worn at the University of Dallas. And then we, what we have learned about Texas is that, um, at least Dallas, Texas, is this is effectively an American city. We th- I thought we'd be staying at like a bunkhouse, and instead we're staying at a Courtyard Marriott. So this is different than we, than we thought. But it's very nice anyway. Yeah. I, I, I felt a little out of place when I got off the airplane yesterday, and it was snowing, and no one was wearing cowboy hats. But, you know, that's fine. Yeah. This is, though, you know, my... I don't know if you know this about my wife, but my wife is a huge fan of um, Walker, Texas Ranger, the television <laughs> show. Huge. Like, and she's not... That is she not, not true. Your wife is not a giant Chuck Norris fan. She is, but she, she really likes Walker, Texas Ranger because she feels that it has good values, like uh, kicking ass. Roundhouse kicking people. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. But, uh, but so... Actually, now that I'm thinking about what I know about your wife, that does make sense. Yeah, so this is the... Not the University of Dallas, but the Dallas Metroplex is kind of the setting for most of Walker, Texas Ranger. So she was really jealous that I was coming here, and she sort of, went before I left, she's like, if you see Walker, this is what you tell him, and she gave me a special note to give him and things like that, so I've got to be kind of on the, on the lookout. I, all right, if, I, I don't think Chuck Norris actually lives in Dallas. No, I mean, I'm just going to go out on the limb of that one. All right, fine. Um, does, does Chuck Norris live here? He does live does? here? Is he in the room? Is Chuck Norris here now? Wow. That, my wife is actually kind of a Chuck Norris fan, so that would be really cool. Michelle, before we get started, can you tell us, and I suppose the audience, a little bit about the Groundhog 
Bacchanalia of the University of Dallas. Ideally, if you could basically mansplain, or whatever the gender-neutral term of mansplaining is, to the people of the University of Dallas what their own paternal feast <laughs> right, is, that would exactly. be great. Please it, tell them in the audience. I told you guys, it's just a party, a big party in the park. It's the biggest Groundhog's Day celebration outside of Punxsutawney, where the groundhog himself lives. The biggest celebration outside of Punxsutawney. It My is. word. Good lord. It is. There are hundreds of people. At least last time I was here, there were hundreds. Alumni come in. They have bonfires and music and drinks, and they used to do hayrides. I think they moved the location. Uh, but it's just a big, fun party. I was actually last night in... Uh, Denver, Colorado, and my brother-in-law, we were having dinner, my brother-in-law had to leave, and he said, yeah, I'm going to this groundhog party, and I said, oh, is it with somebody from UD, and he goes, yeah, how did you know that? I said, people don't just have Groundhog's Day parties unless you go go to UD, so it's really just a really great party, it's a lot of fun, and it's kind of a fun bond, the the university's unofficial mascot is actually the groundhog, so we're the crusaders, but you'll see the groundhog running around, and, and the groundhog is kind of the beloved mascot. I'd now like to think about a crusading groundhog, is that something? that people do, like capturing Morris groundhogs and subjecting them to various kinds of ecclesiastical interrogations. Yep, that's, that's a thing. <laughs> Thank you, careful. <laughs> that's not a thing, huh? Yes. Not so much. Okay, fair enough. Ed, what do you want to talk about? Well, I mean, we should talk about the news in some way because that is, in fact, that's what, what we're we do. To. That's the kind so, of thing. Uh, all right. Do you want door number one or door number two? Do you guys want door number one or door number two? One, one, one three, two. One person said three. One person said three, and that's because this is the University for Independent Thinkers. You could tell that guy... Not messing up. I learned that on a shirt today that I saw. And also that large program, The Quest, that they launched that sponsored the podcast for like yeah, three yeah, months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, okay, well, we should start off talking a little bit about the Pope in Africa, because that is kind of a big thing, and he has been doing that. And yeah. that is a that is a... An event that has been happening, and I, I don't know how much of the footage you've been watching or anyone else here has been watching of it, but I really like it because, I mean, that part of Africa is the only part of Africa with, with which I have any personal familiarity. Where's the Pope? What's he? He's been in the Congo, and he's now, I mean, depending on the time changes, either on his way to or has already arrived in South Sudan, which, you know, wasn't even a country five minutes ago, so bad is the situation there. So these are really the, the, the some of the most war-torn places on Earth, certainly in Africa. Um, and the Pope going there is, is a big deal. And it's been really wonderful, I think, to see him in the Democratic Republic of Congo, to see the the size of the crowds. I mean, it is, I think I'm right in saying it's actually a majority Catholic country. Um, and the number of Catholics there is range in the millions. And it's an unusual place in that the church has, you know, I think we're so used to talking about the church and bishops and the hierarchy of the church is lacking credibility for one reason or other, but even in secular society, being sort of marginalized and pushed out and to say that the, you know, the institutional church has no voice in, in the sort of wider public square. But in the, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the church is pretty much the only credible institution there is, so much so that when there was a, a not terribly good transition of power, which didn't actually transition to anything, and the country was basically in a state of collapse— it was the Cardinal Archbishop of Kinshasa who was put in charge of the country and managing the transition between governments. Right. That's how, I mean, and that was like five years ago. That's how well-regarded the institutional church is there. 
And so having Pope Francis there and seeing these crowds and having Pope Francis deliver what, you know, has been received as sort of, you know, barnstorming speeches touching all of the things that really matter about no to economic imperialism and cultural imperialism and talking about the way that, I mean, the the Congo as a region, the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, the other Congo, so to speak, have been the way they are for, well, pretty much since the Belgians arrived, really. Yeah. Um, and they continue to be a mess today because it is such a incredibly resource-rich part of the world. And, you know, there's the specter of child labor and cobalt mining and rare earth minerals and basically everything you need to make an iPhone you can find in Congo. And so Francis going there and providing this sort of spotlight of, you know, this is a real place. There are real people here because I think that is a real problem when we talk about places like the DRC which is we tend to have it, you know, we haven't moved on that far from Joseph Conrad of just having it be sort of, it's a dark place on the map. We right. know scary, bad things happen there, probably things we wish weren't happening, but we don't really know where it is and what's going on there. And all we tend to see are sort of short videos from charities doing fundraising for, you know, to end child slavery in the cobalt mines. And to have Francis go there and drive down the streets and to have thousands and thousands of people turn out for a mass at Kinshasa Airport... This is a really important sign, I think, almost in reverse to what you would expect. You would expect the Pope going to a place like the DRC to be a witness of, you know, look at these poor people, look at these suffering right. people, we need to draw attention to it. And actually what Francis has done, I think, is is the reverse, and it's even better, which is to say, look at the humanity of these people. Look at the dignity they have. This is not just some failed state in the middle of a continent that the world likes to ignore, that this is a society, this is a vibrant living society, this is an important beating part of the heart of the church that is alive and growing, and we can't ignore it, and we can't relegate them to this sort of second-class, uh, it's just kind of a messy part of the world status, which is so often what happens. I'll tell you what I've been thinking about that. I, I love that you said that because the Pope's visit to Congo, I mean, very honestly, the Pope's visit to the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan has not... I think, captured the attention of a lot of Americans and a, a lot of even kind of practicing Catholics who pay attention to these things. And the reason I know that is because I look at what a lot of them read on our website every day, and our coverage of this papal trip has not been the kind of thing that people are kind of clamoring for or clicking on. It is not, I think, the thing that if you ask people in the United States right now what's happening in the church right now, I don't think the papal trip to Africa would make, would make it high on the list. But what I have been thinking about a lot, and it kind of goes along with what you've been saying, is the trip that John Paul II made to Poland in 1979 when, I mean, so, John, so 1979, John Paul II goes to Poland, which is, you know, in a certain way, like all of the history of the 20th century has been sort of building towards the situation of Poland in the late 70s and early 80s, where, you know, you have the entire story of the, of the Second World War and the rise of the USSR and then the satellite state of the USSR and people who are tremendously economically subjugated and who are regarded, I think, in the, in the West, in the United States, in much the same way you say, well, they live in sort of the dark place where it's sad and that's behind about, the curtain behind the curtain right literally and that's about as much as we know is that they're it's sad over there right and so what the pope does is he goes to poland in 1979 and he says listen to the people of poland he says you are not who they say you are you are not who the communists say you are you are not merely sort of tools for economic production you are not merely the class that you belong to you're not merely who the west thinks you are which is sort of nameless soulless faceless gray sort of 
parts of this gigantic hegemon called the Soviet Union and its collective satellite states. You're people made in the image and likeness of God. You're your beloved sons and daughters of the Father. You are not who they say you are. You have inestimable, inestimable dignity. And when John Paul II says that, he leaves Poland and he sparks a revolution. And arguably, he sparks the, set, the chain of events which helped to bring down the Iron Curtain, which helped to sort of transform the, the map and the economic system. And Francis was writing in Africa, uh, about Africa, about this part of Africa, about the economy of this part of Africa, in Laudato Si. In Laudato Si, he says, look, this is the place where the global focus of the world should be, because the economic story of the 21st century is this kind of extractive, what he calls extractive and merciless capitalism, which goes into a place which sort of sucks it of all of the things which we need to make iPhones and doesn't help to enrich the people who are there, but merely looks at these places as sort of repositories of the stuff that the developed world needs. And he could be saying that, of course, uh, to Beijing, as well as he could be saying that uh, to the developed West. But in, in both he's places, not saying he's it saying, to Beijing, unfortunately. Well, he's yeah. not saying it directly to Beijing, but you know, the, the, the lesson applies to all of the global powers today, right? Look, all of you are sort of fighting over what, who gets claim to um, this part of the world sort of functioning as your, your iPhone mine, you know, your rare earth mineral mine, and which one of you is going to be enriched by that? And we're going to look at it a different way and say, a just economic system says that these places which have resources and people who are made in the image and, uh, and likeness of the Father have dignity and need to be meaningful participants in the, in the, the shifts of the global economy that are happening in the 21st century. And so it seems to me very much that Francis being in the DRC right now is, is a, Poland, a John Paul II Poland moment. You are not who they say you are. You have a kind of dignity that you may not see. You have a kind of dignity that the world may not see, and you matter. And, and it seems to me, honestly, and I don't think that I would just say this because I need to say something nice about the Pope. It seems to me, honestly, that there could be lasting sort of cultural and economic effects of that kind of message and that kind of effort to put a place which is at the center of the sort of global economic story um, at the center of our attention and to put the people in that place at the center of our attention to say you're the protagonist of your own story. The Lord is the protagonist of history, but you are the protagonist of your own story and not sort of just moved about by these ex extraordinary forces of global uh, of the global economy right now. So well, it, it, That is true, but the, the, the thing that also I think is really important about how Francis was and what he said and to whom he said it while he was in the DRC is it wasn't just ad extra. He wasn't just sitting in, metaphorically speaking, Kinshasa speaking to the world and saying, here's how you need to be. He was speaking also to the leaders of the DRC, which, you know, again, right. they've managed exactly one more or less peaceful transition of power in their history. And Francis made a, not fairly, entirely explicit in terms speech to them saying, transparent, accountable, free and fair elections are absolutely necessary and incumbent on you to deliver here. And the world is watching. And I think that's true that this, you know, whenever we get a situation in a place like the DRC, it's both and that, you know, the, the country has to heal itself. And also it has to stop being, have further wounds inflicted on it from outside. And, and both of these are, and I think the Pope's visit does have the real potential to Affect and help both of those along the lines. Whether the same thing will be true in South Sudan, I do not know. Because, I mean, he's already made, I, I, I would say, one of the most striking and public gestures of his pontificate right. when they came to the Vatican and he got down on his knees and kissed the feet of... The, Two warlords who yeah. are sort of feuding over the fate of South Sudan, and the Pope kissed their feet. But but we talked to a priest of South Sudan just this week who said, yeah, but it didn't make yeah, any difference. Happened. So Right, exactly. So the question is whether there can be an actual impact impact there in the same way we will see i hope you know what i really want though is it if coming it's, out of the drc out of all of this i, I do because i think i was about to say the same thing oh okay no please go ahead 
I want some of the papal swag. Oh, that's not what I was going to say. Oh no, have you not seen? I haven't. I assumed. Oh, I actually assumed so cool. that the chasubles were. Oh no, not, not that. I don't good. want that stuff. Okay. I want the local stuff because, like, whenever whenever anything cool happens in uh, a sub-Saharan African nation, you tend to just get like the textile industry goes into overload. Yeah, yeah, and you get you know gowns and sheets and you know just squares of cloth that could be everything from dresses to headdresses to everything else and they've got all this stuff in the papal colors and in blue and white and francis's picture on it and people are wearing them in all kinds of styles i want some of that like when benedict came to the uk in whatever it was 2010 or 11 11, i think it was 11 11 yeah because i i quit my job that year and moved to canon law school in 2012 so yeah i was 11 um but when benedict did that they like made a papal tartan for him up in scotland and if you were on the inside, you could get, like, the papal tartan necktie, and I have one. It's kind of cool. Which is to say, did you, I just want to point out something awesome that happened in that story. Ed, point one, if you were on the inside, you could get that. Ed, subtle point two, and I have one. Really, I mean, that was amazingly well done, and I would like you to be on the inside of Kinshasa papal I swag I want the papal well. swag from Kinshasa, because it looks really, really cool. Yeah. What I, do you I, want to come out of it? I bet it's nowhere near as cool as that. No, I would... I would also like that, although I'm perfectly ha- like what I'm really hoping right now actually is has already been fulfilled because what I wanted more than anything when I woke up this morning was some University of Dallas swag and I got it. We have a cool groundhoggy sweatshirt that, is that true. I'm super psyched about. Um, this is a true story. Is as we were walking down the stairs to come in here and having our usual pre-live show jitters and you know saying, "Do you think it'll be more or less than five people?" We always we always more start telling ourselves before the thing. No one's going to come. No one likes us. No one's going to come. And, and I and may have said something thing. like, "If there's more than ten people, I'm going to end up spending a lot of money in the U Dallas bookstore because oh, I'm going to love this place so oh, much yeah, for no, filling a room." I'm, I'm looking forward to getting more University of Dallas. Oh no, stuff. I'm, go- I'm going to spend some money. Okay, on but here's later. what I want that doesn't have to do with that. Um, so the the other message that the Pope gave in the DRC was to the country's episcopate, right? So the other group that the Pope talked to in the in the Democratic Republic of Congo in addition to a few others, was, were the bishops of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And he said a similar thing to them, right? He said, first of all, you, the church has been and needs to continue to be in this place a significant sort of force for social uh, transformation, for public morality, for public accountability towards justice, and, uh, and the church has the opportunity to, to be a prophetic voice about that. But then he also said to the bishops, you also have a role to play in the life of the church. And that's something that we've been talking about a lot, because we have, as we've been talking about this sort of lead up to the first October meeting of bishops for the Synod on Synodality, the question that I think a lot of people have been asking, hold on, Ed wants to order a beer. No, you can keep talking while I order a beer. It okay. wouldn't be the first time I've opened a beer while you were talking. Yeah, uh, the question that a lot of people have been asking leading up to the October meeting of bishops for the Synod on Synodality is, will the, uh, will the bishops of Sub-Saharan Africa and the bishops of Oceania have a voice, or will the Synod on Synodality be shaped effectively by the continental bishops of Europe and North America? Well, we and, need to talk about that. Yeah, well, what we've seen thus far, I mean, with the continental, the working document for the continental phase of the Synod on Synodality, our data guy, Brendan Hodge, has done all this analysis, which demonstrates that indeed the continental phase of the Synod on Synodality document is mostly impacted by the European bishops and the North American bishops. But the Pope effectively gave the, D- the bishops of the DRC marching orders to jump in with both feet to the Synod on Synodality. So the question becomes, do they? And then if they do, are they heard? Or is there such a sort of European and North American sort of power strangle on the final document of the uh, Synod on Synodality that there, it won't make a difference anyway? 
I, I would agree. And I, in fact, there are several things we need to talk about falling on from that right after this word from our sponsor, which is the University of Dallas. We'll God be right bless back it. after this word. The University of Dallas is the university for independent thinkers, the Catholic University for independent thinkers. It's a great place. It has this bar. It's probably a very good deal. And if you don't already go here, you should go here, everybody. The University of Dallas. I actually do kind of wish that I went here because we were walking around and it seemed like this this seems like a fun school. Like, is this a fun college? This seems this seemed like I was walking around just thinking that people seemed happy here. And honestly, like and you know what I didn't see a lot of? I'm not trying to make a commercial, but I guess I am. You know, we were walking around and we saw all these College kids, college students, young people—young people. I don't want to speak pejoratively. Just say of you. whippersnappers, JD. We, get it out. I mean, I just don't want to get all these notes like, "Well, you triggered me by saying college kid and whatnot." You know, you this can't is say the college-educated AP says no, it's dehumanizing. College we saw all these college kids who weren't looking at their phones, but were having conversations with each other. And if anything says University for Independent Thinkers, it's that people here seem to be talking to each other and looking at each other, looking at each other in the eye, which is an unusual thing for 2023. So, well done, University of Dallas. You put your phones away. And I will finish this entirely sincere endorsement by saying this, because you can't make it up. As we were walking across campus to come to this place, I saw across the whatever you guys call it, the quad or whatever else, my niece. And I went and said hello to her. I said, what are you doing here? Because she doesn't go to this university. She goes to another Catholic university several thousand miles away. And she said, I'm here for the Groundhog Party. Like, you know, what is, like, has flown in as an undergraduate from another Catholic school because this is the only place you go to that burn the Groundhog. That makes this effectively, so like, this is the Panama City of the Newman Guide set is what I, is how I took that, which is amazing. Well done, University of Dallas. That's very good, too. <laughs> I hope you put Panama City of the Newman Guide set on your, on your brochures. I'd be proud of that. You look like you're an administrator here. Are you going to do that? No. No, okay. definitely not. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, okay, go ahead. Ed. So, no, what I was going to say is, you know, so you say that the, and Brendan did do all of this statistical analysis of all of the working documents that came out of the continental, uh, the sort of continental proposals ahead of the continental phase of the synod and synodality versus all the diocesan reports versus the, the synod secretariat in the Vatican's document to guide this whole thing and, and showed reasonably conclusively that it was shaped predominantly by North America, the Anglosphere, and Western Europe. That's right. But not just those places, but very very particular parts of it. And of course, what is happening this weekend, and it's kind of infuriating to me that, you know, it's not being watched incredibly eagerly by everybody, is the bishops of Europe or the bishops' conferences of Europe, or as they are rather ambitiously putting it, all the people of God. The people of of God of Europe are meeting in Prague. Are meeting in Prague. Every, Every baptized Christian is meeting in the city of Prague this weekend, if you believe the synodal hype, which I find so hard. Showdown on the bridge of what what is it? The St. Charles Bridge? This is exactly the question, is what is going to happen? Because you're going to have the Germans there, of course, and they're going to be flanked by the kind of great theological, evangelical, zealous powerhouses of Switzerland and Luxembourg with all of their Those are places stuff. where the faith is really alive and powerful. Yeah, definitely. And- it's, not like the, it's not like mass attendance is dropping like a stone or anything like that. But So, so you're going to have them on one side, and then you're going to have you know, the, the bishops' conferences from other countries like Poland, like Hungary, and places like that, which have taken what I think it's fair to call a really faithful line 
on the synod on synodality. And by faithful, I mean not just faithful to the church's teaching, faithful to the magisterium, faithful to what the church teaches a synod is and how a synod is and what a synod can do and what it is for and what Francis has also called on the synod on synodality to be, which is a legitimate conversation within the respected bounds of what a synod is versus all of this sort of loose confederation of uh, other bishops' conferences. And it's not clear to me how it's going to go, because you had last week the Synod Secretariat in the Vatican put out this memo to all of the bishops in the world saying, well, you know this Synod, you're really important, and it's, you know, it's, it's true. They sort of grudgingly admitted through, you know, you could hear their teeth being gritted as they said this. It's true that it's only a synod if the bishops are the ones doing the right. discerning and, uh, and you know, saying, oh, we promise it's not going to be a steamrolled, gerrymandered, pre-determined you know, affair. And, you know, you guys should absolutely take it seriously. And the European Continental Assembly this weekend is going to be the dry run. Like, this is where we're going to find out whether that's Hang on, time true out, time out. Sir, are you wearing a Texas Instruments shirt? Do you work at Texas? Guys, this is Mr. TI-82 right here. This man, listen, if you have ever passed a math class without understanding what's happening, this man did it for you. What is your name, Texas Instruments man? Bob, don't take his money. I'm buying him a drink. This is too cool for me. What do you do at Texas Instruments? Design games? Because all I did with my T-82 is play games. Is that what most people do? No, we have made semiconductors for like DLP projectors and He's a rocket scientist, He's a rocket JD, scientist. and you reduced him to a Did calculator guy. Did you go to the guy. University of Dallas? No, I'm a Purdue you're, you're a what? Purdue grad. You're a Purdue grad? Oh, well, what brings you here now? Texas Instruments, everybody. Our second sponsor for this episode of the Pillar Podcast. This guy invented the TI-82, I think. He's just not allowed to say it. Go ahead, Ed. I just couldn't... I just was amazed. No, what I was saying was that um, the, we have gotten to the point through the synodal way where basically the German Bishops' Conference is incapable of breaking with or standing up to the Central Committee of German Catholics, which is not, as the name would imply, a committee of German Catholics. It's a political organization made up predominantly of current or former politicians Bingo. in Germany who you know, are baptized mostly, I think. Um, but who openly advocate and demand things like the ordination of women, the legitimacy of abortion, the changing of the church's teaching on human sexuality, things like that. And the the German Bishops' Conference is now so wholly bought into the ZDK. And so beholden to them because of the Kirchenstauer. I mean, part of exactly. it is so beholden to them because the German church is funded by the church tax, which yeah. they're terrified of losing. And so there's a sort of need to sort of continue to mollify people. Exactly. So, I mean, you the, the, when the Germans say, basically, we're going to take our ball and go home with it, I, I actually, I give the German bishops this much credit. I genuinely don't think they want a schism. I genuinely don't think Bishop Botzing or Cardinal Marx or people like that actually would like to see the German church break with Rome. But I think they also are quietly freaking out because they realize that's the corner they've backed themselves into. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, good luck to them freaking out. I don't know how they're going to get out of that. Because as we published, I think it was more than a year ago, when Cardinal Casper, a, no one's idea of a conservative, but a German cardinal nonetheless, was sort of freaking out and saying publicly, yeah, the German synodal way could absolutely lead to a schism with Rome, and I'm terrified that I'm saying that out loud. It turns out, you know, we kind of gamed out talking to lawyers in Germany and things like that, like what happens to the German church tax and all of the German money. And when I tell you that the German church is rich, I mean, this is how it works. So if you live in Germany, you pay your income tax. And 
10% of your income tax that you pay to the state goes to the church. Right. Which church it is, you can choose by filling it in the census forth. I'm Catholic, I'm Lutheran, I'm an atheist, and I wanted to go to this non-governmental organization, which I nominate as my quote-unquote church. But it's happening either way. You're giving 10% of your income tax to a church. And what that adds up to in the German church is, I think it's 7 billion euros a year is their income, more or less. Like, uh-huh. Cardinal Marx, as the Archbishop of Munich, has a state sponsored salary of half a million euros a year. That's how much money they have. And if the German church goes into schism, that actually doesn't go with the German bishops into schism because the allocation of the church tax, the Kirchensteuers, believe it or not, regulated by a treaty the Nazi government signed with the Holy See, the Reichskonkordat. So we're in this really weird gray area where the Germans are threatening to take up their ball and go home. But if they go home, it turns out we get to keep the ball. Yeah. So it'll be very interesting to see how that plays it out. It will, although we won't be watching it because we will be groundhogging it up while this meeting in Prague is happening. And I am super psyched about that. Yes, we will. Okay. Thanks, everybody. This has been great. We'll be around for a drink. 